There was nothing for the dogs to do, save the hauling in of meat now and again that Thornton killed. And Buck spent long hours musing by the fire. Irresistible impulses seized him. He would be lying in camp, dozing lazily in the heat of the day, when suddenly his head would lift and his ears cock up, intent and listening, and he would spring to his feet and dash away, and on and on for hours through the forest aisles and across the open spaces. He loved to run down dry watercourses, and to creep and spy upon the bird life in the woods. For a day at a time, he would lie in the underbrush where he could watch the partridges drumming and strutting up and down. But especially, he loved to run in the dim twilight of the summer midnights, listening to the subdued and sleepy murmurs of the forest, reading signs and sound as man may read a book, and seeking for the mysterious something that called, called, waking or sleeping at all times for him to come. One night he sprang from sleep with a start, eager-eyed, nostrils quivering and scenting, his mane bristling in recurrent waves. From the forest came the call, distinct and definite as never before, a long-drawn howl, like yet unlike any noise made by husky dog. And he knew it in the old familiar way, as a sound heard before. He sprang through the sleeping camp and in swift silence dashed through the woods. As he drew closer to the cry, he went more slowly, with caution in every movement, till he came to an open place among the trees, and looking out, saw, erect on haunches with nose pointed to the sky, a long, lean timber wolf. The Call of the Wild by Jack London This is Our Numinous Nature, and I'm your host, Philippe. We'll be hearing the profound stories of people with a deep connection to the natural world, from herbalists to hunters, wildlife rehabilitators to trappers, artists to homesteaders. The list goes on. My hope is to thread a needle that weaves together the many nature-related passions through stories of reverence. In nature, I found meaning, a richness for life that grows with each new day. Maybe you feel the same. Or maybe you long to. First things first, thank you shout out for today's music goes to Vitali Drimbar. Uh, that is the Norwegian Bookahorn in D sharp, followed by pair of conch shells in F sharp. Later on on this episode, you'll hear another little piece of music, which I believe is on a whistle, and it's uh, a rendition of The Wayfaring Stranger, which is a traditional folk song, and that one will actually be performed by today's guest. And today's guest is Barry, a.k.a. Bear Saragusa. Bear is a former Maine musher with over two decades of experience with sled dogs. He's currently a vet tech um, he's a houndsman and hunter, 
uh, and he is the host of the Hunting Hound podcast, which is under a larger podcast that puts out multiple shows. That one is called the Hound Podcast by WU Hunting Supply. I've got links to that in the show notes. And Bear lives in Norway with his wife and kids and dogs. And I love this episode. So while uh, Bear's current focus and passion is on hunting dogs, we talk about that very little on this episode. Um, If you want to hear more about that, definitely check out his podcast. But for today's episode, we do like one hour about living in Norway, living amongst the animals, the mythology and the ruins of the ancient, you know, bygone Vikings. And we talk the second half of the episode for about another hour is all about when he was mushing, which he got into as a kid. And he tells two really incredible stories from his mushing days, one of which is numinous, visionary, the and beautiful. The other one is absolutely harrowing and it is a brush with death. So I'm so both of them are well worth waiting around for because they're they're awesome, awesome stories. And um I guess my brief takeaway for this episode is that there are, you know, I know many, many, many people, of course, have pets. They have pet cats and dogs. And I know everyone loves their dog. I love my dog. Um, I kiss my dog all the time. I pet her all the time, you know, stuff like that. I'm sure, I'm sure you do many of the same things. But I don't really think I'm a dog person. Bear is a dog person. It's another level. Like their dogs are, as you'll hear kind of the conversations we got into this episode, their dogs are like weaved into their soul, like who they truly are. So I just love this episode. Bear says a handful of things, which um, kind of um, kind of numinous little things that surprised me. Like, what is it like to be in these ancient Norwegian woods? Really, really cool. So I hope you enjoy this episode. And uh, as you'll tell, it's obviously not one in person. So I'm still really battling uh, with myself whether or not, whether or not I want to keep doing these long distance episodes. I thought there was something really special in keeping my podcast regional by only uh, doing episodes with the people I can reach. So that means within one to two and a half, three hour drive or going on special trips. Um, I did one episode recently with uh, Megan, um, who is in the Scottish Highlands. Um, so that was a long distance episode. And I'm trying that again here with Bear all, all the way in Norway. Uh, if I feel like I want to keep doing these long distance episodes, well, then that opens up a whole world of potential themes and topics I can get to. You know, I would love to do an episode on Celtic mythology, I would love to do an episode on. Nordic mythology. Um, uh, If I keep with long distance, I might purposely not do America um, and keep it special by going and talking about Europe because I obviously love Europe and I have so much family there. I think we really need to get into some of the folkways, mythology, folklore, tradition of Europe. Okay, so let me say thank you to all of you who are keeping this thing going. Um, I really appreciate it. 
I get a lot out of making this podcast, and I'm so thankful that you that you are not only listening, but some of you are even helping me fund this thing. So much appreciation. The first goes out to Jess Paget, Kendall Wine, Ash Barron, Rachel Hawkshaw of Topsy Farms, On Stanley, Diana Gonzalez, Earl Suter, Franklin Renshaw, Heron O'Brien, Jamie Nudd, James Mann, uh, Jeff McLaughlin, Kenneth Giles, Leslie Peterson Cohen, Michael Alderson, Ryan Arnold, Rambler, Ryan Gweckner, Steve Childs, Tristan Harper, Tyler Lively, Waterlight, the and uh, the working class woodsman and every one of the lower tiers. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, so while I've read a book on Norse mythology, I haven't really set many of these stories to memory. Whereas with some of the Greek stories, I I can I can kind of recall a little bit better. So on today's episode. Bear mentions um, some of the some of the myth of Fenrir, the mythological wolf. So I thought it would be awesome to do a reading from my book of Norse mythology, the story of Fenrir. This is from the Norse Myths by Kevin Crossley Holland. Um, this one is going to be a little bit on the longer side for a reading, and because uh, I want to cover the whole story. And um, obviously, you're going to need to um, forgive me for my mispronunciation of some of these Nordic names that I'll never be able to figure out. Chapter 7, Loki's Children and the Binding of Fenrir. The mother of Slepnir was also the father of three appalling children. Not content with his faithful wife, Segun, Loki sometimes took off for Jotunheim. The long-legged god hurried east and spent days and nights on end with the giantess Angerboda. Loki and Angerboda had three monstrous offspring. The eldest was the wolf Fenrir. The second was Jormungand, greatest of serpents. And the third was a daughter called Hel. Even in a crowd of a thousand women, Hel's looks were quite likely to single her out. Her face and neck and shoulders and breasts and arms and back were all pink. But from her hips down, every inch of Hel's skin looked decayed and greenish black. Her expression was always the same, gloomy and grim. When the gods heard that the father of lies had also fathered these children, they were filled with alarm. They discussed what to do about them at the well of Urd, and the three Norns gave them little encouragement. Their mother is evil, said Urd, but their father is worse, Verdandi said. Expect nothing from them but the worst, said Skuld. Accept them to harm you and endanger you. They will be in at the kill. And so the gods agreed that Loki's children must be captured. At Odin's behest, a group of gods crossed into Jotunheim by night. They burst into Angroboda's hall and gagged and bound her before she had even rubbed her eyes. Then they kidnapped her children and carried them back to Asgard. Odin was in no doubt as what should be done with the serpent. He picked up Jormungand and hurled him into the ocean surrounding Midgard, the world of men. He hurtled through the air, smashed through the iron face of the water, and sank to the sea bottom. There he lived, and there he grew. 
Jormungand, the Midgard serpent, grew so thick and so long that he encircled the whole world and bit his own tail. Odin was just as sure as what to do about the serpent's sister. He took one look at Hel and hurled her out of Asgard too. He threw her into the mist and darkness of Nivelheim, the world beneath the worlds. And as she fell, she heard Odin's decree that she would look after the dead, all those in the nine worlds who died of illness or old age, the condition being that she would share out whatever food she had with whoever came to her. Hell made herself at home, beyond the sheer rock, dropped to destruction, she built huge walls around her estate. Her hall, Elgenir, home of the dead, lay within it, behind a massive pair of gates. Hell's manservant and maidservant, Ganglati and Ganglot, moved about so slowly that it was not easy to tell whether they were moving at all. Her plate was called hunger, and her knife famine. Her bed was sickbed, and the bed hangings glimmering misfortune. Odin thought it would be best if the gods themselves kept an eye on Fenrir. He seemed no different to any other wolf, and all the gods agreed that there would be no harm in letting him roam around the green and golden fields of Asgard. Even so, of all the gods, only Tyr, son of Odin, was brave enough to face Fenrir alone and give him great joints, flesh and gristle and bone to keep him quiet. The gods were not slow to change their minds about Fenrir when they saw him growing larger day by day. And then Erd, Skuld, and Verdandi renewed their warnings, and said that the wolf would cause Odin's death. Their alarm became far greater. They agreed that since they could not kill the wolf there and then and stain the sanctuary of Asgard with his evil blood, they must catch and fetter him. Then the gods made a powerful chain of iron links, and they called it Lading. Several of them went up to Fenrir, showed him the chain, and asked, Are you as strong as this? The wolf inspected Lading. It's certainly strong, but I'm certainly stronger, was all he had to say as he let the gods wind the chain around his neck and body and legs until there was only a small length left for them to hold on to. Finished, snarled the wolf. He planted his massive paws well apart, filling his lungs with air, then flexed every muscle in his body. Lading's links at once sprang apart, and the gods sprang back alarmed. The gods lost no time in making another chain. This was called Dromi, and it was twice as strong as Lading. The links were larger than those of the largest anchor chain. No men could have even moved them. If you can break this chain, the gods told Fenrir, you will be known for your strength throughout the nine worlds. Fenrir looked at Dromi. He thought it looked immensely strong, but then he thought that he too had grown even stronger since he had snapped Lading. No one wins fame without taking a risk, was all he had to say as the gods wound the vast chain around his neck and body and legs. Finished, snarled the wolf. He shook so that there was a terrible clinking and clanking and grating. He rolled over and arched his back and banged the chain against the ground. He tightened his muscles until they were as hard as the iron links of Dromi. He stood up again, dug his paws into the earth and strained and strained, and all at once, Dromi snapped. It shattered into hundreds of separate links. The shrapnel flew in every direction. After this, the gods were frightened. 
they thought they might fail to fetter Fenrir. But if anyone can make a fetter that will not break, Odin said, the dwarfs can. And he sent off bright Skirnir, Freyr's messenger, to the world of the dark elves, Svartalheim. Skirnir went down under Midgard through gloomy, dank, twilight grottoes. There he found Nar and Nain and Nipping and Dane and Biffer and Baffer and Boomer and Nori and hundreds of others, each one as horrible as the next, and promised them gold and more gold if they could make a fetter for Fenrir. In the gloom, the dwarfs' eyes gleamed like glowworms. They whispered and schemed and set to work. They made a fetter as smooth and supple as a silk ribbon, and they called it Gleipnir. When he returned to Asgard, Skirnir was thanked by all the gods for going on this mission. But what is it made of? asked Odin, fingering the fetter. Six things, said Skirnir. The sound a cat makes when it moves. A woman's beard. The roots of a mountain. The sinews of a bear. The breath of a fish. And a bird's spittle. The gods were both astonished and skeptical of Gleipnir's power. If you doubt it, as I doubted it, said Skirnir, remember the cunning of the dwarfs. After all, have you ever thought why a cat makes no noise when it moves, and why a woman has no beard? You can never prove that a mountain has no roots, but many things that seem not to exist are simply in the dwarfs' safekeeping. Then a large group of gods approached Fenrir for the third time. They invited him to go out with them to the island of Lingvi, in the middle of Lake Amsvartnir. There the gods produced the silken ribbon Glepnir. They showed it to Fenrir, and challenged him to test his strength against it. It's a little stronger than it seems, said one. It's as well woven as the words of a good poem, said another. But you, Fenrir, you'll be able to break it. The wolf looked at Glepnir. This ribbon is so slender, he said, that I'd win no fame for snapping it. He eyed Glipnir again. If, on the other hand, cunning and magic have gone into its making, then slender as it looks, you can keep it to yourselves. I'm not having it wound around my legs. Before this, said one god, you've prized apart massive iron fetters. You'll have no bother with this band. And if by any chance you're unable to break it, said another, we'll set you free again. You can trust us. Fenrir showed his teeth, and the god did not like the look of them. If you're able to fetter me, he snarled, it will be a long time before I can hope for any help from you. Fenrir prowled right around the group of gods. I don't want to be bound with that ribbon, but neither do I want to be accused of cowardice. So while the others bind me, let one of you put his hand in my mouth as a token of your good faith. Tyr looked one by one at all the gods in that company. All the gods there looked at each other and said nothing, wondering what to do. Then Tyr slowly lifted his right arm and put his hand in Fenrir's mouth. At once the other gods wound Gleipnir round and round the wolf's neck and body and legs until it was all used up. Fenrir began to struggle against it. He tried to kick and shrug and shake and jerk and roll. But the more he strained, the tighter Glipnir became. Then Fenril snarled and clamped his teeth. Tyr, bravest of the gods, twisted and cried out, unable and able to bear such pain. The other gods laughed. They knew that Fenrir was bound at last. They all laughed, except Tyr. He lost his hand. 
The gods fixed the large chain called Gelha to the end of the silken ribbon. They passed the end of this chain through the hole in a huge boulder called Gelhol, looped it back, and secured it to itself. The gods drove Gehol a mile down into the earth. Then they found the vast rock the Viti and dropped that on top of Gihol to fasten it. Fenrir shook and wrestled. He grated his teeth and gulped and opened his blood-stained jaws immensely wide. Then one of the gods drew his sword. He drove the point hard into the roof of Fenrir's mouth and rammed the hilt against his lower jaw. The wolf was gagged. Fenrir was gagged and Fenrir was bound. His howls were terrible and slaver streamed from his jaws. It ran from the middle of the island into the lake of Amsvartnir and was called Vaughn, the river of expectation. And just as the Midgard serpent waits at the bottom of the ocean, coiled around the world, just as hell waits in Nivelheim, surrounded by corpses and swirling death mist, so, gagged and bound on Lingvi, Fenrir lies and waits for Ragnarok. Right now I'm in the high mountains of eastern eastern Norway. Um, about if you look at Norway, I'm about two thirds of the way down, so below the Arctic Circle. But in the mountainous areas uh, there, I live in a valley called Bödal, and I live way up on the top of the valley side, on the edge of a big plateau that ex- extends. Yeah, a few hundred miles in one direction and a few hundred miles in the other direction. And it's, um, yeah, it's midwinter here. It's been really cold, 20, 30 below uh, for most of the winter. And we've gotten an unusual amount of snow uh, considering it's been that cold. Usually when it snows, it, it's a little bit warmer, but it's been really cold. and We've gotten a lot of snow. So uh, we've, uh, yeah, that's that's where I am. It's beautiful here right now. Uh, it gets a little dreary in the in the fall and early winter when it's just snowing, slate gray and snowing. But now it's uh, the sun's starting to come out and the wind is starting to get a little bit of a little bit less of a bite to it. So I'm starting to feel, yeah, like maybe spring might be not too too far away. So one thing I think that's really interesting, and in, now that I've moved to Appalachia, is like these regions. Mm. So you know, I I'm not familiar much with. Scandinavia. Um, a lot of my family is European, so I've been to the United Kingdom a lot. I've been to Belgium and France, but I've ne- I've never been so north in Europe. And um, I was looking at a map. You told me before where you live, so I know you're a few hours from Oslo, which is very southern, right? Oslo is like basically at the bottom of Norway. It's pretty far southern, yeah. I mean, if you wanted to get way down to the bottom, you'd still need to drive another uh, eight hours, maybe. Um, to get all the wow, way down okay. to like Stavanger. Yeah, that's going to be, okay, that's going to okay. be all the way at the bottom. But yeah, we're, you know, we're a few hours north of Oslo. And I, w- yep. and I was surprised to see on the map, like how north 
it goes. I mean, I guess it goes into the Arctic. I mean, it looks as at the, oh, for sure. the top looks as high as Alaska. Oh, I mean, the top. It's the top of Alaska. Yeah. Is the, oh, it, it, it is. Yeah. No, um, it's got, you know, Norway is a deceptively long country. It's not very wide, but it's very long. Mm. So if you put a, if you put a pin in Oslo and then rotated the entire country, the northern tip of, of, um, the northern tip of Norway would reach all the way from Oslo all the way down to Sicily. So mm. it's a it's an ex, it's so it's huge, a very very long country, but a very small country in, mm. in terms of total landmass. But one of the interesting things is is that it's got, um, you know, because of the fjords and all the folds and things in in its coastline, it's got an ex, an incredible an incredibly long coastline. Mm. Um. So yeah, which is obviously ties into all the seafaring, sure. uh, Viking Absolutely. culture and all that, Abs- and the fishermen Absolutely. and all that. Maybe we can get in. Maybe we can get into that a little later. We'll but to, yeah. um, so are you are you in a particular region within the country? Like, is there a name? Like, is there something? Can you describe your landscape? And is it special in comparison to the? You know, is it different sure. than other parts well, of the country? Well, I'll, I'll break it down a little bit for you. Um, you know, the southern the southern parts of Norway are going to be a little bit flatter, a little bit more glacial, va- not glacial mm. valleys, but uh, sort of uh, sedimentary valleys. Um, that's where a lot of the uh, growing happens. A lot of the, you know, potatoes mm. um, is, a, is one of the big crops. Onions is also another uh, pretty common crop here and then that's where a lot of the grazing happens as well a lot of the sheep and the the cows mm. and things like that are going to be found you know uh, farther south although there's a lot of that here and sort of these micro farms here um and then once you get a little bit farther north sort of to where i am you start to get into you know down south you'll you'll be in like the beach and the ash and the aspen forests and then you'll get up here and you'll start to get into the birch and the mm. and the pine forests, and it'll start to get a little bit more craggy, a little bit more hilly. The you know the area that I'm in is where the big mountains are. You know places like Hardangivida and Jultenheimen and uh, places like you know the the huge mountain ranges here in Norway are you know both of those are within two hours of the house, and I'm in you know the foothills of mm. both of those uh, where where I am um, as well. So. And then you get a little bit farther north and it gets even more stony and craggly. And, you know, you get kind of above the above the Arctic Circle and, you know, you've still got hundreds and hundreds of miles of Norway that's above the Arctic Circle. And then you're then you're into proper tundra country, you know, then you're into areas mm. where, you know, up on it's going to be alpine vegetation um, above treeline, which, you know, because you're so far north, the treeline might not be more than 100, 100, 150 feet above sea level. Um, but you'll have these little cops mm. of copses of uh, mostly at that point birch, mm. um, and uh, yeah, it's uh, so where we are is um, it was the region of Norway where a lot of the timber was mm. both harvested and produced. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Now up north, um, you know, I'm always interested in you know in indigenous cultures and. Mm-hmm. Our, our own ancient ancestors, et cetera. Up north, is that still like the area of the Sami people? Sa- I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Yeah, the Sami. 
Yep. Yeah. Is that still like a thriving culture and community of people? Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the Sami people, you know, they share, they share, unfortunately, a, a, or they share an unfortunate history, hmm. a commonality with the Native Americans. And okay. that they were, they, they were, uh, very poorly treated. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to a degree are still treated with, by, you know, maybe the, the more ignorant among us as, as, as somehow less than based purely off of the fact that they're not ethnically mm, mm. Uh, Norwegian. Mm, right. Or not, not ethnically white Norwegian. You know, they're right, a, right. as ethnically Norwegian as it's possible to be, in my opinion. But that's, you There's know. still some tensions and whatnot. A, a little bit, you know, mm. still a little bit. But, you know, they it's a fantastically rich culture with, you know, its own music and its own art and its own history and, you know, a lot of, uh, it, there's still a culture for the reindeer herding and, mm. and that's, that's very much alive. Um, you know, off, obviously modernized, but, um, still very, a very rich and beautiful, beautiful culture. Well, um, what, the, what has, uh, come up that how I've come aware of them is oh, recently, like maybe over the past 10 years or so, um, I've just seen seen a lot of people talk about um, the origins of Christmas and the fly agaric mm. psychedelic mushroom. The um, yeah, fly agaric, yep. which is muscaria. Ah, forgot exactly what it is called, but um, yep. I it's I have, called flying flying sop here mm. is the Norwegian word for it, mm. and that's that one you see in all the old European like Christmas cards of the little red mushroom. But I but there's like a popular. Yep thing that's been going around for the past like decade that our Christmas tradition stems from the Sami people who I think would, um, I, I think what I had read was that the reindeer would ingest the fly agaric and then the shaman would drink the urine of the reindeer. I guess that was some way to purify mm-hmm. it. Cause I think there's, I think it's a bit toxic to ingest in yourself. And then they would have these visionary states. The flying reindeer is how we get Santa with the flying with his flying reindeer, and uh, some of the sled sure. stuff with Santa is, I guess, kind of part of their culture. And I just think that's so awesome. So that's how the Sammy kind of came into my uh, awareness. Sure. Yeah. I mean that, and that makes sense, you know, because and it, it's really interesting to me because of you know the the Viking people as they established themselves in Scandinavia, they were obviously influenced. They lived, you know, alongside of, dominated, certainly, but, you know, uh, were also influenced by the Sami people. And, you know, so a lot of the old Norwegian myths, a lot of the culture around, you know, Christmas, for example, uh, you can definitely see the where a lot of the roots could be traced back to, um, you know, some of what you've talked about. And then being as prolific as the Vikings were in terms of, you know, both expanding and conquering, they, a lot of our modern day Christmas traditions can be traced back to, um, you know, Viking traditions. Mm. And, and where... Which is really interesting. What, you know, we don't have to get too into it, but where did the Vikings, it, it does, what's the, um, 
I guess archaeology or whatever the right word is, but what is the thought where, where did these, the, so the Vikings are not necessarily the indigenous people of Norway. Are they from lower Europe? And That's then, right. okay. Where, what, who were they? Were they Germanic tribes? They or were, what? yeah, basically Germanic tribes way, 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 way back when, you know, um, um, as, as people, the, you know, peoples of Europe began populating Europe, mm. um, the, you know, the Norwegians, the, or what, what it would be modern day Norwegians, Danes, Swedes, um, you know, a very large portion of those, uh, those people were, you know, dis descended from the peoples of the Germanic tribes that, mm. you know, moved, moved into the area. Mm. Fascinating, man. You know, something mm. I, something, so I did a recent episode, the international one, uh, with, um, a young woman from um, the Highlands of Scotland, and that was a great episode, by the way. Well, thank I loved you. That episode, yeah. Um, one thing I forgot to ask her, and it, I'm I feel remiss. Um, and I know, you know, having my own European family, uh, Europeans don't really care about it because it's just kind of like in their backyard every day. But for for you know Americans or you know someone like me who grew up in America, I pine mm. so much for like those ancient ruins, like the old yep. churches and the, you know, the old, um, the, uh, you know, the you know, Roman ruins. And so I forgot to ask her is where she is in the Highlands. Is she surrounded by like the old castles and whatnot? Like no one in Europe cares about castles cause they're everywhere. But, um, right. for us, it's like so romantic and I pine for these old, these old cultures, I guess. What, um, so when you're out and about on the landscape, like, are you guys, are you coming across some of these ancient places? Are, are you? Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, we definitely are. There's, 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 there have been people here and that, that's what's so fascinating about, about Europe. Exactly. As you say, it's, there's so much history here mm -hmm. and not only so much history, but for such a long time, it's been so well documented. You know, you go, you look at the United States and obviously there were, it was a well peopled, very rich cultured place, you know, before the, you know, the Europeans arrived. But, you know, you look at, if you look at things like architecture, there's not a whole lot of it. You can go to places like the Pueblos or, 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 or something like that, but. Yeah. And in the East, we, you know, you could, you could come across some of those mounds, even some of the areas that I've right. hunted in the Shenandoah. Um, sure. supposedly those fields were actually fields that were, that, you know, were being cultivated by the people on the Shenandoah Valley. Um, you know, you might find an arrowhead, but there's something there's something I pine for this like romantic, um, you know, walking amongst, amongst like the stone blocks of some ancient building, you know, I miss that. And yeah, so that's kind of what I'm getting at. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's definitely something that we have here that we don't have in the United States. You know, you, you look at, at uh, architecture and things like that and, you know, you, an old building in the United States, you know, some, something absurdly old is going to be from, you know, the 1700s. Mm -hmm. Whereas here, you know, they've got, there are buildings still standing from the Viking era. And people, and sometimes people just like, that's just their house. 
<laughs> right. I mean, consider, I mean, just consider my house. You know, my house is way, you know, way, way up on the side of this mountain. This was never a heavily, heavily populated area. This was never a very influential or important area where I live now, apart from its worth as a, as a timber area. But my house itself was, you know, was built in the mid, like, m- beginning to mid 1800s. Mm. The, and it's a log house that has been added onto several, you know, multiple times throughout the last however many years. But the, the foundation and the inside of the house, the, the, the bones of the house are, you know, fairly quickly approaching 200 years old. Mm. And this is just a random far, you know, an indentured farmer's house originally is what it was. Mm. You know, but you go to places like you go to places like Oslo or you go to places like um like um you know uh Arndal and and some of the older places in Norway and and you get these you find these just amazing buildings that have been there for, you know, since like the 1300s. It's ama- it's amazing to look at you know places where Places where people have walked there for so long that there are foot deep trenches worn down into the into the granite and the you know, the marble. It's really mm. amazing. This you're saying the stone, like the steps of stones, have been worn out by people's feet for eons. People's feet have been have worn <laughs> them down, like like the bear trails in Alaska, where bears have walked the same trails for you know ten thousand years and have actually God. worn them down into the soapstone. Wow, I have never heard about that. Um, oh yeah, it's a it's a thing. It's I've, I've been up. I've actually taken a peek at them. They're pretty cool. Wow, wow, they are pretty cool. Well, hey, on the on bears. So one thing, you know. So we've communicated. We've kind of become Instagram buddies, chatting on Instagram. You've helped yeah. me a lot with my hunting <laughs> dog. We're gonna get into hunting dogs and all of that. But one thing I was surprised sure. by, even with having you know so much family in Europe, even having gone there basically every single summer as a kid. I still was unaware that, um, well, to back up a little bit, I think Americans, including myself, kind of think that America is like one of the last places where we have all these enormous, uh, you know, huge animals and huge uh, carnivores and um, these wild, wild places. So I was kind of, well, I was extremely surprised to hear from you like the creatures that are still in abundance where you are. And so like, say a little bit about like, what are some of the animals there, the big ones and the small ones and anything in between? Sure. Well, I mean, a lot of the animals, it's, it, it's the evidence for that the continents were, that there was, you know, either a land bridge from, uh, from uh, Siberia to Alaska, or that the continents have at one point were were joined, it's it's fairly damning, and just in terms of the fauna that's here, it's 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 so it's really interesting because you know we've got as far as deer species, we've got the roe deer, um, which are like mm-hmm. they look a little bit like white-tailed deer, but they're maybe a third the size. They're real small, 50, that, 45, 50 pounds. Yeah, that was one of the ones they got in Scotland and. Yep, that's a big one over in over in uh, Britain, and then we've got the red stag, which they've got uh, over in Scotland. You talk to mm-hmm. um, that 
Deer Stalker. Uh, that young. Yep. She, that was a great episode. But um, we've got those, and then we've got the, the moose hmm. over here. And the moose over here are a little bit different than the moose over, you know, I grew up in Maine on the east coast of the United States. And I, the moose that I saw there were probably a third bigger than the moose that I see here. Oh, really? Okay. You know, yeah, cons- considerably bigger. You know, I shot a, I, I'm a hunter and I, I harvested a bull moose this year that was, Gosh, what would he have been? Four hundred and fifty pounds, maybe for something like that. Mm. Not, not even quite that. About four hundred pounds, which is you know the size of a medium small cow. Okay, interesting. In 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 Maine, so it, there's there's definitely a difference. But in terms of like everything else, we've got we've got brown bear. They're not like the grizzly bear. They're they're quite a bit smaller, but they're like the. Mm. Uh, they're they're like the uh, yeah interior brown bears. Um, same. We've te- got aggressive. Wolves. Are they same aggressive temperament? No, not at all. Hmm. Uh, quite the opposite, actually. They're they're um, they're in. I've lived next to them for. There's not a lot of them right where I am, but there've definitely been bears, and I've I've met them before. But it wasn't until I got into hounds that I I started meeting that I became aware of just how many of them there are and how secretive they are. They, mm. they absolutely, they're not like the black bears that I grew up with in Maine, you know, who would raid the garbage every two weeks. You know, they, mm. these guys don't do that. They're, they're way far away trying to stay as far away as they, they possibly can, which, you know, could be, you know, could be, could just be a temperament deal, but I, I I tend to think that most temperaments are, uh, especially in in terms of wild animals, are uh, you know learned behaviors or even you know evolutionary in, in terms of you know survival mm. of the fittest. That the bears that got too close to humans didn't survive. Mm. So you've got a population here that is does goes to pretty pretty extreme lengths to stay away from us. Mm. Um, so you know there's. It's very, very, very rare that you hear of anybody getting attacked by a bear. And 90% of the time when that does happen, it's because um, somebody miscalculated and got too close to a sow with cubs. Mm. So so they're kind of like in between the... Our American bears, kind of like between the black bear temperament and the grizzlies and the brown bears, kind of like somewhere in between... Well, the grizzlies are pretty dangerous, and the black bears can be dangerous just because they're so used to humans. Mm-hmm. There's, uh, the, what's that old saying? A familiarity breeds contempt. Mm. I think that's part <laughs> of the issue with the, with the black bears. Mm. Um, the the brown bears of the interior are not as aggressive as the grizzly bears. Okay. So you're they're a little the ones that we've got here. You know the Eurasian brown bear. They're going to be more similar to that kind of bear. They're not as big. They're okay. not as. They're not going to be as confrontational or gnarly as some of the grizzlies can get, or some of those coastal brown bears um, that just get so humongous. Mm-hmm. But these guys are, you know, in terms of size, yeah, somewhere between a black bear and uh, and a grizzly okay. bear. And, and then, um, and then you were just starting. To, and then you were just starting to say you you also you guys have wolves. Yeah, we have wolves. Um, 
not a lot of them right now. The there's a when you look at wolf management here, you, you kind of have to consider the the culture, and part of the culture here is domestic livestock. Mm-hmm. And because Norway is as far north as it is, and the pop and the terrain here, especially in my part of the country, is so rocky and so steep, it's hard to cultivate animal feed. So what they've done for thousands of years is they will have their animals, they'll cultivate all the feed that they can locally, save that for the winter time, and then have what they called winter vinterfura or winter fed animals. Hmm. The the other ones, like the lambs from that year, or, or the will be slaughtered at the end of the summer, but those are all released into the mountains, into the just loose in the mountains mm. in as part of it's a right that the farmers have to let their animals take advantage of the mount the summer mountain grazing. I think that's similar with uh, Vivian. She um, she's from New Zealand. Yep. And um, in New Zealand, I think they they kind of like cast them free in the mountains, the sheep. Yep. Yep, for sure. No, they definitely do. It was uh, it was. Uh, I've got some friends in New Zealand who drink, mm-hmm. who have some sheep, and it's um, it is pretty similar. Um, so the Norwegians keep a very they've got a very different attitude when it comes to the wolves. And I, I'm painting with a very broad brush here. There's it's mm-hmm. a it's quite a hot button political issue right now. Actually, the wolves. Um, and and how they're being handled here. Um, there's very, very little tolerance for uh, mm. predation. Um, if you ask the farmers, they'll tell you that uh, there's too much tolerance for it. And if you ask the you know the, the people who are you know for higher populations of wolves, obviously they think that it's that we're taking out too many of them. But you know, once a once a wolf has been documented having killed, you know, so and so many sheep, it's most of the time you're going to get a, um, a license to remove that wolf. And, and then, I think, I mean, it needs to go through the police. It needs to go through hmm. the the county, and it needs to be a special team of what they call license hunters, licenciegera, hmm. that need to go out and actually. Um, destroy that animal Mm. i think you said recently on one of your podcasts that uh, a girl was attacked on her horse or something yeah that happened not that long ago um there were two gals two gals riding their horses and a wolf just came out of the bushes and went after the one horse and uh, the horse spooked obviously and and started to run and the wolf stayed on it uh so the horse really panicked and ended up throwing the girl and um luckily the other woman took chase uh with her horse and was able to scare the wolf off of of the girl i don't recall whether the girl was bitten by the wolf or not but um you know the you know as i like i just said with a brown with the black bears you know familiarity breeds contempt and i think that that's part of the issue that we're seeing here is that it's so rare now here in Norway to to hunt the wolves it's so rare that that really happens that that you don't have 
they don't have their natural fear hmm. of human beings in the same way that they do potentially in Sweden, where you know there's still a bunch of issues in Sweden. Don't get me wrong, but it, it's the wolves are not as used to just being able to do whatever they want in Sweden. Um, you know, and you know, a wolf is just being a wolf. They're not. There's. They're incredibly. They're incredibly adaptable. They're incredibly intelligent animals, which is you know why they've gotten the response. The. They've gotten the reputation in a lot of different cultures as being sort of evil incarnate. That they do so much damage, and they're so deliberate and and sort of. Yeah, intelligent about the way they go about it. It's it's um. You know, it's it's hard not to look at them. I think like they're, yeah. Well, you can see where all the mythologies come from. You know, Red Riding Hood, and you know, so many mythologies. Um, sure. I know there's Viking mythology about the wolf. I can't quite remember what exactly it is, but um, um, um the the animal that will bring on the end of the world is a wolf. Ah. Interesting. Yep. Ragnarok, when that happens, yep. Ragnarok will be, it was the son of Loki is a wolf, and that wolf's name is Fenris. Yes, yes. And when Ragnarok, the end of the world, comes, the gods will fight the uh, the demons of Loki, and um, the Fenris, the wolf, will be the downfall of the gods, is, is the North mythology. Mm. And there's the, I think that some of the, I think it was actually just portrayed in that recent Viking movie, um, Northman, where the mm-hmm. the berserkers they would wear wolf skins, and I think there's a special word for it, but they would you know go into their oh they were called slaughter wolves, and I think they would wear the wolf skin yep. as they as they uh, rampaged. Yeah, that, now the berserkers would wear wolf and bear skins. Yeah, incredible, incredible. Yeah. I mean, I can I can that movie. While I think it ended on a kind of a little Hollywoody, I think it did capture some real kind of like um uh, I, I felt like that movie captured like a spiritual energies and truths. Like when you see mm. the warriors doing their wolf dance, I really felt like I could see and understand that even I um could be transformed in one of these rituals into just like a berserker i could right. see i could see how the the rituals would work in manifesting uh certain qualities in a person i guess kind of it kind of super intense that movie i think you haven't seen it right i haven't seen it yet no i haven't but you mentioned the um um that type of toxic mush- mushroom that's called the flying soap here yeah the fly garrick yeah there's been some studies, and I haven't I haven't looked back on them recently, so I don't know what the what the conclusion was. But there was a theory that potentially the berserkers drank um, some concoction made of that mushroom, which gave them this sort of uh, yeah. I, I've heard that too. Uh, I didn't know it was fly agaric, yeah. but I did hear about that and um, about them taking some, you know, psychedelic mushroom into battle. Yep. Um, that also was portrayed in that movie. There's a scene where oh, they're all it? imbuing oh, cool. from this uh, special brew. Um, yeah. Let's see. Well, you know, on that kind of, on that a little bit, kind of, 
One thing I thought was really interesting, you and me would uh, send messages on Instagram is how I was telling you how there are regions I've noticed since moving to Appalachia. So I grew up in Northern Virginia suburbs. Mm -hmm. We lived for the past five years in rural Northern Virginia. So uh, near the Shenandoah National Park, if you've ever been there. Sure. Oh, yeah. It's it's beautiful. Um, I did not feel what I can only describe as like a spirit in the land. I do feel that here in Appalachia, like I can feel something that I can't really put words to, but I can feel some kind of, I don't know what it is. Undercurrent of energy. Yes. And so we talked a little bit and I told you how my family's from Belgium and how the woods in Belgium, the Ardennes, which is a very uh, legendary region in Europe, the Ardennes sure. forest has this, even though I'm sure what I'm looking at are not primeval forests, they're, you know, they've been logged and they're kind of planted in rows of these dark, dark, dark pines in the Ardennes. But there is this, you can just feel this kind of gloomy medieval presence when you're in there. And and then you kind of said in your woods, you can kind of, well, elaborate what you kind of told me if you remember. Yeah, I, I remember we've had a couple conversations about that thing, but uh, or about that kind of thing. But you know what? Here we've got these enormous forests of pine that are not necessarily planted in rows. You know, there it's it's and Norway tends to be kind of a wet place depending on where you're going. There's a lot of mist. There's a lot of rain. Um, but especially the mists. There's there's a lot of mist here. And sometimes, you know, I can be out hunting and the mists will roll in and, you know, suddenly the, as soon as the mists rolls in, it seems like the animals have learned that it's just, that's their time to boogie. Because suddenly the forest can just come alive with all of these sounds from things that you can't see. You know, occasionally you can just see the sort of swirl in the mist and something disappearing. And it it gives this really kind of, you know, for somebody with an active imagination like I, I do, like I have, you know, it, it, it certainly gives me this sense that, you know, what it, the Norwegians have a have a term for it called trolsk, which is troll-like. It's got this sort of troll-like quality where you would not be at all surprised to see a troll, moss-covered troll, just kind of stroll past you. Um, it's this very sort of ethereal, um, yeah undercurrent of energy yeah it's it's a, it's a pretty magical place and if you know even if you don't believe in magic it's 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 one of those places where it's hard to be here without and feel it's hard to be here and feel nothing well look even if you know even if someone who's very much a sensation type the the world the way they interpret the world is by what you can uh, touch and uh, see and measure. Even mm-hmm. then, even if that's how you interpret the world, it's interesting why certain mythologies arise from certain landscapes. So, like, even if none of that's real, what's fascinating is you're in a landscape where large amounts of people, the folklore is these trolls and stuff like that. That is fascinating mm-hmm. itself. Even if it is merely the landscape evoking our unconscious, that's fascinating. Right. Or there are it, it is. <laughs> right. You know, I mean it's 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 one of these great things about about here is is the 
the mythology is it's not been forgotten in really any way. You know, you can you can go up to a random, you know, some random Norwegian on the street and ask them some a question about Norse mythology. They're not going to necessarily be able to answer you. But what's really interesting is despite the fact that you you have you know Norway Norway's been it was um was anglicized or you know the 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 the, the pagan faith was made you know was was taken over by the by the the Christian faith in oh gosh I can't remember what year it was but it was Olaf uh King Olaf who who really got it got that ball rolling he became a saint saint Olaf um but the place names they've still held on to all of the old names they never they never changed them to you know like you can go through places like like the united states you know places in maine or places in alaska where you know you've got mount mckinley but the real name of Mount McKinley and what everybody calls it is Denali because that's what the natives have called it for mm, mm, mm. thousands of years. You know, and it's that never happened, that didn't really happen here. So, you know, like the one of the huge mountain ranges is called Jultenheimen. And it's been called that forever. And it's it's literally the direct translation is the land of the giants or the home of the giants. Wow. Wow. And there, there's just a ton of places like that he all over the place where and one of the really funny things is that when it be when um Olaf became king of Norway, he you know the however many hundreds of years ago, um it became uh it became mandate that people needed to brew a certain amount of beer, oddly, and then uh, they needed to build a church, a Christian church. So they built these wooden churches, which there's still some of them around. They're called stav, stav churches, stav, stavkirke. And what I love about these churches is that you you walk, and at first glance, they are just wooden churches. They don't look that different. But mm. if you start to look at the details you can sometimes find runes in the foundation. Or one of my favorite parts is the gable ends were frequently carved into the heads of dragons like they would have on the longhouses. And the reason for that was they were, you know, there were crosses on the top and everything, but they were just wanted to be sure that just hedge their bets a little bit in case maybe this Olaf guy was not 100% right. Mm. That, uh, you know, if... Odin came around, he would still see the dragons and would know that they hadn't completely disregarded him. Which I just, that little bit of detail just tickles me. That is awesome. Yeah, I love when some of the older cultures or the pagan cultures are still retained and then they kind of morph into um, into the Christian. Like, you know, you have the, you know, I've been reading some Celtic mythology for over in mm -hmm. Ireland and stuff, and you know, you have the the older pagan beliefs, even the type of art merging with Christianity, like those kind of the swirling Celtic crosses and stuff like that. It's really fascinating. Sure. Um, yeah, it is my, really fascinating. Yeah. 
my mom, my mom is kind of planning a trip for Norway and I, we saw near Flam, they have about an hour away. They have one of the really famous wooden churches that you're talking about. It looks just stupefying, just so beautiful. Yeah. I think from 1100 it's, or something. Yeah. They're amazing. They're amazing, amazing places. They've, they've got a couple of them not far from, not far from where I live. And it's, it's just, uh, yeah, they're shocking. I mean, they're just, you know, you can go to these huge stone cathedrals that are awe-inspiring in their own way, but these are, these are just awe-inspiring. It's kind of in the same way, you know, it's, it's, to me, there's a difference between looking at like a castle that's been, hmm. that's been there for so long. It's, it's awe-inspiring, but then you find something that's been in daily use for, you know, 1500 years or not 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 quite that but you know a thousand years you're saying there's still active churches that people are going to for mass there some of these some of these churches wow. are still in use yeah god that's so not cool. necessarily as actively as they were a lot of them have become landmarks and they're definitely you know considered to be cultural uh you know culturally important and you know cultural inheritance if you will but um yeah i mean they'll still there's they will still do, you know, masses and weddings and christenings and things like that in these churches for sure. Yeah. I mean, just listening to all this, I just love it. And, um, it kind of relates back to like, um, you know, sometimes you have, I, I was on a hound hunt with, with some of my Virginia houndsman friends mm -hmm. and, um, I just, it's too long of a story. I won't get too into it, but, uh, I just like had this, uh, very strange, numinous three seconds where I truly felt like as we were, it was an 11 mile hike of a day, you know, on trail, off trail, down screes, down boulder fields, through mountain laurel. It was just probably the hardest I've ever exercised in my life. I was like, by the time we got to the treed bear, I was, uh, I was gassed out. I could like hardly even move. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, but, uh, I did have this very strange, like three seconds where I truly felt like I actually time traveled as crazy as that sounds, but I felt like I had crossed some threshold and that I was, uh, in the presence of some like native American, like guides or something. It was sure. very strange. And then I snapped out of it and I was like stunned. Like my hair stood up and tears filled my eyes. And I was just like, I, it was it was, it was a numinous experience, but I bring that up because, um, I wonder, do you ever, you know, you already talked about this kind of, uh, the landscape evoking the troll folklore mythology. I mean, do you ever mm. feel like when you're out hunting in these, in these, uh, incredible landscapes with so much rich ancient, uh, history and culture, do you ever kind of feel the presence of these peoples? Um, I've never, I don't know that I've ever thought of it in that way. You know, it's, mm. it's one of those things where, you know, being outdoors has always been something that's been, you know, an extremely important part of my life and not just for the physical aspect of it. It's, you know, it's all, and you know, the health aspect of it. It's, it's also, there's something, there's something deeply satisfying, even, you know, even on a, on a spiritual level of being out in, you know, amongst, you know, the, what, however you view to look at uh, out amongst God or, uh, you know, amongst mm -hmm. God's creations or out amongst the gods, however you want to look at it. 
Um, you know, so I, I find a lot of the time that I'm out there, I, I definitely get these moments where, you know, the hair stands back, stands up on the back of my neck and my, you know, or I get this little shiver down my spine or something makes me, you know, something that I can't explain makes me turn around and I get to see something that if for, you know, whatever subconscious thing, part of me picked up on that there was something worth looking at over in that direction, you know, it's, and whether that's, I've never really thought of it in terms of it, that being any kind of connection with the the peoples that peopled this you know peopled this land before, or the mythology of it necessarily, but it it, it definitely you know there, there's a spiritual aspect of being out in in some of these places that I you know I I totally agree with you when you say that you know you can I can go down to. I can I can go to places in in Norway where I don't have that feeling at all. Mm. But then I can find places, you know, especially in the area where I live where there's so many there's so many hollers and deep draws and and you know uh river valleys and things where you can just kind of go walk in there and get lost mm. intentionally if you want to. And you know, you can be walking and then find these you know, one of the things that we'll find frequently here are um, the moose hunting pits what? that have been that were used back in the Viking times. Yeah, what they would do is that they would set up, they would run moose through before there were firearms. They would run moose through the woods and sort of try to herd them into um, an area where they had dug pits filled with filled with um, sharpened. Spears, yeah, um, or sharpened stakes. So, like the the, and, the so like the archetypal pitfall that you'd see in Indiana Jones. Yep, absolutely. And they would run, they would run the moose until they until they fell through. You know, they had covered these pits or 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 whatever, and the the moose would run through and collapse and and would impale itself and die. Those are still all over the place here. <sighs> You can still find, I mean, and obviously there's no stakes and they just look like these sort of vague bowls in the ground when before they were, you know, well, well maintained, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, you can still find that kind of thing all the time. And, you know, especially when I'm out there moose hunting with, you know, a, a GPS and a high powered rifle and you, know, you just, I can be standing next to one of these things. I remember I had this really interesting experience where I was out moose hunting uh, it was one of my very first times out moose hunting. The second day I'd been moose hunting with um, with where I'd I'd finished all of the requirements and was able to legally hunt here. Um, so it was the my second day moose hunting ever, and I was sitting next to this enormous rock, and from that rock I could see one of these pits the remains of one of these pits. And, you know, I, I was kind of sitting there just kind of contemplating. I wonder how many moose were taken. I wonder why they put that pit specifically there. And while I was thinking about that, uh, a moose and a an, um, cow and her calf came running out of the woods, uh, you know, right by that pit. And... The, the moose hunt is a quota hunt here. So we get 
specific types of animals that they they want us to harvest, and one of those is a calf. So that calf um, was harvested by me 20 feet from a moose hunting pit from the Viking age that who knows how many moose have been harvested there. That is literally incredible. That is so amazing. I mean, that right there, it, that is like a time crossing experience. Yeah. That, you feel like you're walking in the footsteps of giants for sure. It's like, you know, how many, how many people, how many people were standing in this exact spot watching, watching, you know, hunting moose a thousand years ago. It's, it's, it's a, it's, a, uh, it's one of those sort of bone, or not bone chilling in a scary sense, but just kind of the oh, like yeah, d- deeply unnerving because it's profundity. Yeah, he be sort of uh, to use a to use a main expression gives you the heebie-jeebies. Well, let's get to main in a second, but just right to finish that note. Um, yeah. yeah, I often wonder what calls you know people who feel called to doing any kind of hunting or farming or any kind of even crafts that reach back into time that, you know, people have been doing, whether you're getting into blacksmithing or anything like that, these things that connect us to the past, you know, when we were looking for a place to live, um, you know, we were looking at houses online and we found this one place. I had a dream about it. Um, we live on a road that's uh, the beavers in the name of the road. And I had a dream of a beaver standing in a, in a doorway of a house. So that kind of told oh, me wow. to go, what my, that kind of told me that this is probably the right direction. And what was fascinating is now we live in this house and uh, I did not know in advance that the area I'm in was, I guess, early 1800s, maybe late 1700s, was a hunting and trapping rendezvous point. And oh, that wow. literally at the end of my road, which takes the, our road just has like, you know, a few dozen houses on it. I mean, maybe like 50, maybe a little under a hundred houses or something, but we we're surrounded by national forests in the mountains. So, you know, I'm mm. in the, you know, I've climbed on the top of the mountain and looked down at the tiny little village. Um, the one strip, there's no, there's stop sign. There's no light. There's a mechanic there and an old church and an old jail and some old houses. And I'm looking down at that valley and just being like, you know, there are people doing exactly what I'm doing, you know, hunting and trapping and doing all that stuff. Like right in, I felt like on the mountaintop, I was looking down at the past. I was looking at the 1800s or sure. it's kind of inc- just incredible how you can have these timeless experiences. I just love it. Absolutely. Um, and I, I think it's something that just to add a little bit to that, just a thought that popped into my head as you were, as you were saying it is, I think that especially for the, for those of us that are interested in, in, in history and maybe mythology and how things were done before, I think sometimes we can take advantage or take, take it for granted. Some of those experiences that, you know, uh, looking back on, especially when I was young, you know, looking back on some of the things that I did as a kid, because I lived in a rural area where the the holding on to the rural heritage was actually a part of the community in a in a very real way. You know, I did things like like blacksmithing and like harvesting lumber with you know harvesting timber with oxen. That was just 
totally, you know, not abnormal to me in any way that I can now look back on seeing how sort of special and cool it was that I, you know, grew, got to grow up doing those kind of things. A thousand percent. And while I imagine that a lot of these things will keep existing, they maybe they won't. So it's like maybe these are the last years of doing things that have been done for thousands of years. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Sometimes I get, I worry, I get sometimes with like, especially the hound stuff, which we'll get into. And, and sometimes when I'm doing a little bit of trapping, I'm like, is this going to stay around? Am I like one of the last people to dabble in this, you know, not growing, having not grown up in it. Yep. Um, but let's go, let's go to Maine. So you're not even from Norway. So we've had this awesome conversation. This has honestly been awesome <laughs> about Norway. You, um, moved there, what, like, a um, a decade more than a two decades ago or 15 years ago. Uh, or? Yeah. 15 years ago, about 15 years ago, it'll be 15 years this September. Nice. And, uh, you know, I'm and very aware you moved there because of your wife, who is a Norwegian, yep. and you raised Norwegian. your family yeah, there. Right. <laughs> um, yep, but, I have. But you are a Mainer, and um, right. is that how they say it? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Okay. And, I want you know, really, the reason I wanted to have this podcast, and we're only getting into it 50 minutes in, is uh, <laughs> you... You have this amazing, very adventuresome childhood of doing the dog mushing. And that's like a topic I know yeah. very little about. Um, our yep. Instagram friendship has kind of come up because I got a hunting dog, I got a squirrel dog, and I've asked you a lot of questions about raising a working dog. So you having this incredible childhood, I just would, I would love to just hear kind of like everything about it, like how you got into it. <laughs> um and more about your childhood. And also, if you want to weave in anything you know about the history of mushing, because I don't know much about it. Like, why were, was this something that, like, was this something that the Inuit were doing? Like, I, I really don't know very much about it. So I sure. take it from there. Let's hear some about mushing. Okay. Um, yeah, I got into mushing when I was 10. And it's it's actually one of those things where, when you you get to be a certain age, and it seems to be you know thirty in your thirties, mid thirties, where you start to look back and start to be able to see sort of defining moments in your life that brought you to wherever you are now, and you know a defining moment in my life, uh, looking back, was it was my eight ninth birthday. And my dad asked, what did I want to do today? And I was, I was a real, I, I've always been a kind of big kid in the sense like just a, you know, tall and tall and big kid. But I was real bookwormy at the same time. I, I spent most of my time reading books. I loved to read. And it, to the point where my, I think my parents started to worry a little bit that maybe maybe I wasn't, I was escaping into my books in a way that maybe wasn't healthy. So my dad asked me on my birthday, which was a weekend, what do you want to do today? And I said, I don't know. And he said, well, it's your birthday. You decide what we do. And I said, I, 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 don't, I don't know. And he got kind of frustrated with me. And he, he, he said, well, we're going to do something. You get to choose what it is. And I said, I don't know, you know. And he got, I remember him getting frustrated with me and 
slapping a paper down in front of me with the calendar for that weekend and said, you need to pick one of these things. And I sort of churlishly, without looking at it, just stabbed my finger down on something, said that. And that something was a winter carnival where they were giving dog sled rides. So he was like, okay, get in the car. And so we drove and went to this winter carnival. And along this stone wall was a long, uh, long picket line, a, you know, a, a chain with, with smaller chains running off of it, of where they had staked out uh, a couple of teams of sled dogs. And these people were giving kids rides. And I got there and found out that I was too big, that I, I was, you know, already the it was for the real little kids and I was already too big. But I asked if I could just spend time with the dogs because dogs had always fascinated me. And I sp ended up spending just the entire day just walking up and down this line of sled dogs, petting them all and getting, you know, sort of taking the whole thing in. And, you know, in a very uncharacteristic manner for myself, I, I tended to be kind of a shy kid. I actually went up to them at the end of the day and asked, hey, if I could, if I did work at your kennel, if I poop scooped and things like that, you know, would you, would you show me how to do this? I was nine, nine years old at the time. And they said, sure. And that was uh, Liz Como and Andy Chakamakis were their names. And they had a, a company at that point called Winter Journeys that gave dog sled rides. And I spent the next two winters poop scooping and just helping out in any way that I could and got my first puppy when I was 10. And that really kind of never looked back. Every every aspect of my life since basically since that day has been was set up around the dog mushing. Um, I I yeah, it was what yeah every every good thing that's happened to me really ever uh, came about because of my involvement in the dog mushing. Well, we're going to get more into it, but that in itself is just so incredible. Like I very much, so I'm very much into like Jungian, Jungian, um, psychology and kind of interpretation of dreams and stuff like that. And there's a, sure. Jung, there's a Jungian writer named, uh, James Hillman he came out with a book called, mm -hmm. uh, I forget what the book is called, but his theory is called the acorn theory. And his idea is that every human being every, is a, is born as an acorn and that um, we have the potential to feed that acorn and it will turn into a, you know, mature and robust and um, uh, fruit bearing tree, an acorn bearing tree. Sure. And uh, yep. I guess the idea is that everything is contained in the seed. The everything is in the acorn. The acorn knows how to become a giant tree. And I just, I think that I, more and more, I think that kids, you know, you kind of had this like moment where I would say like a synchronicity just pointed and then that opened a doorway for your life. And it's like the kid knows, you know, I've done a lot of episodes with uh, people who are deep into herpetology, like reptiles and amphibians. And those folks mm -hmm. are so passionate and 
the theme I hear over and over again is that they were doing that when they were a little kid. They were picking up salamanders, sure. they were picking up snakes, and now they're, you know, the one I just did, he's he's the state herpetologist. Or another one I did was with a family friend, and, you know, she was, at age seven, she was working. Like, at age seven, she was getting paid to put on, like, reptile shows. So it's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, so, like, with you, it's incredible that, at like, age 10, you're already directly on the path of your life. It's just incredible to hear stuff like that. Yeah, it was it was one of those yeah serendipitous moments where um, you know it was a sort of seemingly random I guess a little bit like the chaos theory you know a butterfly mm. flaps its wings and there's a tsunami on the other side of the world mm. you know it's it's a, a little bit like that where it's just the seemingly random flick of my finger was what it Shoo. took to get this ball rolling that gained you know eventually led to me living in a totally another country married to a Norwegian raising my family around these sled dogs. Now what so what um, what were you actually doing with the mushing? Like I really know so little about it. Like what are you doing? Is it races? Um I did a little bit of everything. Um the 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 dogs I got my start with were these great big, you know, 100 plus pound um just really awesome dogs, but I mean, just beasts like woolly mammoths. They were, they were, they were prehistoric. Um, and those dogs actually, there's a kind of a cool story behind those dogs. There was, um, for about, gosh, what was it? I guess it was about 50 years. So like from 1944 to 1994, they had a joint United, uh, joint U.S. British um, research station down in Antarctica, hmm. and they had dogs down there to conduct their research during the winter times. And uh, in nineteen ninety, in nineteen ninety two, there was a law passed that the only non-native species allowed on Antarctica would be humans. Mm. So this, this program, which had been breeding and, and training sled dogs down there for 50 years, suddenly was, was, you know, was, was, was suddenly made not only obsolete, but they needed to get the dogs out of there. Mm. So a, uh, a handful of those dogs were sent to... Um, uh, up in, to Quebec, and some of them were sent to Minnesota. And the dogs that I got my start with were the sons and daughters of those dogs. That's incredible. Now you got to really you got to talk to me like I'm a bit of a dummy here. Like what? You know why did they have those dogs? Is this like the only means of transportation? Is at like what what were they doing? Like what? Like tell me about the history of like the mushing and all that. Like why were people using these was this like the only way to get around yeah or you know it, originally you know the, the dogs have been used as a as a beast of burden in a lot of different cultures for you know for, for millennia but the modern day dog mushing as we kind of think of it is was really an alaskan thing okay okay um and 
dog mushing was used as a means of transportation way before there were trains and planes and mm. snowmobiles. It was the only way, apart from your own two feet and snowshoes, really, that you could that you could effectively move in the wintertime. Mm. And, you know, the wintertime is also the time of year where the animals, their coats are going to be the thickest and therefore worth the most. So it was the time of year that the trappers got out. Mm. And especially in Alaska, you know, you could have a 80-mile trap line mm-hmm. and be able to break that up into three or four days and just keep doing that round all winter long, checking traps and be able to earn what you needed for the rest of the year. One of the, so So, one of my all time, the only place I've really seen what you're talking about is on TV and one of the best shows ever. It was, is a really well-made, very classy, very beautiful and heartfelt documentary series called The Last Alaskans. Have you ever seen it? I don't think so, no. It's incredible. Like, you know, a lot of those Alaskan shows are super corny and they're like kind of faked mm-hmm. up. Like this one is really, really done with a lot of class and beauty. And um, anyways, um, it's like four families who live in Anwar, the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. And um, sure, yep. And at some point, they're, uh, they're, once their children or whatever die, they, those properties will no longer be there and it will return to a truly wild place. But um, anyways, they all run trap lines. And one of them is a younger guy, probably your age, who does it with the sled dogs. So that's how cool. I can understand like what you're talking about. And I didn't realize that that's probably, that would have been the way of the, the traditional trappers. I mean, even, it, is this coming from an indigenous culture? Is this coming from an, the Northern Native Americans? Like, or if we're- Absolutely, did, okay, yeah. okay. Oh, for sure. Okay, yeah, I wasn't no, sure. absolutely. It, you know, it came from- you know, you've got the you've got the Inuit people, and okay, they that's had what I they had their own dogs, and then you had you got a little bit farther south, and you got into the woodland Indians, uh, or you know wood, what they called the woodland Indians back then. Was, excuse my political incorrectness, but it's um, like the Athabascans. Okay, um, and, and then they, they had their their own types of dogs and their own ways of running them. Fascinating. Okay, interesting. And when. You know, that was all very much its own, a uh, very closed off thing until the gold rush. Hmm. When suddenly people showed up who had enormous needs for transporting heavy loads over long distances, regardless of the time of year. And the sled dogs in the wintertime being the only way to do that. And what happened then was that suddenly you got all of these native dogs, but people usually came, went up there with their own dogs. Hmm. And you started to get things like, you know, St. Bernard and setters and spaniels and Labradors and things like that getting bred into the local dog population and, but being held to the same standards as the old dog population had been held. So a a sort of very, very, very clear survival of the fittest. And it created this dog that was, you know, both fast and immensely strong and had the, the, the modern day Alaskan Husky. And it's, you know, it's continued to evolve since then, but the modern day Alaskan Husky is the ultimate 
um, long distance uh, mammal. Hmm. You know, you've got birds. You've got birds that will do these epic migrations. But you know, the the Alaskan Huskies. If you look at something like the Iditarod dog sled race in Alaska, that's twelve hundred miles, and they're doing that in eight days. That's stupendous. Which is unbelievable. And, you know, you're, you're not doing it in eight days and then having an entire team of dogs collapse dead once they cross the finish line. You've got a team of dogs, you know, ideally if you do it right, you've got a team of dogs that could turn around and do the same thing again. You know, so these are the ultimate athletes of the animal kingdom. And what happened was that with the invent of the snowmobile, Mm. suddenly people had other options mm. and that didn't involve having to care for 12 living things for an entire year. You and could feed them. You could park a snowmobile and forget about it for the summer and then it's still going to be ready to roll for you in the, you know, in the spring or in the winter, rather. So the, the dog mushing really started to die out, especially in some of the villages. And, mm. and it was the actually the Iditarod sled dog race was the brainchild of a guy named Joe Reddington, who was a trapper and he was a dog sled expedition or a dog musher from, a, from up in Alaska who thought that it was too bad that the, the dog mushing and the huskies were starting to become a thing of the past. So mm. he started this race to try and raise awareness and it ended up turning into this huge epic event that's now gone on for the last almost 50 years and had, you know, blew life back into a, you know, cause he was having the same, the same kind of thoughts that you were talking about a few minutes ago, think standing there being like, I wonder if I'm going to be like the last guy that does this, hmm. you know, like a legit worry that within his lifetime, he was going to see this not was going to see this disappear. And he he created the Iditarod Sled Dog Race, which was the first modern race of its kind. And, you know, a bunch of races followed after that. And it created this culture and, and this community that's still uh, alive and for the most part well uh, today. That is so amazing. That is so cool. That yeah. really, really, really. No, Joe, Joe Reddington was a guy... Uh, that that guy was the ultimate the ultimate badass. That guy was amazing. Now, when those that folks guy. are doing those races, like where where are they, are they just like like where do they sleep at night? Are there like cabins on the way, or do you just like wrap up in a subarctic sleeping bag and sleep on the side of the trail? Yeah, yeah I mean, you, you definitely do that. You know, we would definitely do that. We I never ran any. I never ran the Adirad. Um but I ran a few races in Maine, and then I ran a bunch of races over here when I got over here. Um, when I first got into the dogs, like I said, it was with those big furry ones. Mm. And those were not racing dogs. Those were those were freight expedition dogs. And they were really perfect for um, tourists because you didn't need a humongous team of them to pull, you know, two or three fat guys around. You know, it was, they mm. were ideal for tourists. Um. They, but being kind of a primitive type of dog, they had they had some primitive tendencies that were really kind of difficult to deal with. Sometimes, you know, they were great about eating, which was great, but 
They also were needed to have a very clear hierarchy, you know, hierarchy within the pack, and that caused some issues. There were some dog to dog aggression issues there that eventually it got to the point where it was just like, you know, I either need to get out of this completely or I need to find something that's going to work a little bit. It's going to be a little easier to work with. And Your the same people who had those dogs. Other, yeah, basically. Yep. Mm-hmm. No, just these big brawls to sort of establish who was who was the kingpin when I was not around, you know. And it always had, that was the crazy that was the most frustrating thing is it would always happen when I wasn't there. Mm-hmm. Um, I just I just did a recent episode with a um with a Russian guy who at one point he was um and this is with the Leica dogs of the of the mm-hmm. Siberian peoples and he was just saying that um when he visited this Mansi family which is, a, I guess, a tribe there in Western Siberia. He said that um, there was just, you have to even feed the dogs in a pecking order to, to, so because he uses the same word, it's a primitive breed. They're a bit of a wilder dog. You know, they're not, mm-hmm. it's not like our modern dogs sleep in your house and whatnot. So I guess you're, I guess you're interacting with dogs kind of at a, a little bit, probably like a little bit further back in, Again, it's like you're kind of going yeah. back in history. You're not dealing with their modern dog. There isn't, I don't know what I'm trying to get at, but there's definitely something. Yeah, I with, get what you're saying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. I, t- I totally get what you're saying. And it's, it's true. You know, it's, uh, this is those, those dogs, especially the ones I got my start with, were, they were, they were no joke. They were, they were the same dogs. If you'd taken those dogs and plopped them down a thousand years ago, they wouldn't have looked out of place. And they wouldn't have struggled to function in that setting, you know. Whereas today's huskies wouldn't last for ten minutes really? in that kind of a really? setting. Really interesting because it's it's just a different. There's different requirements, and it's a different. It's just a different world. Um, you know, today's huskies are they're lighter coated. They're much lighter built. They don't have mm. the big bones and things like that. They're they're endurance animals in the you know in the in the the absolute you know pinnacle of what that means um but yeah you know when you're out racing to get back to your question when you're out racing you know they've got checkpoints so places where you're you're required most of the time to stop uh along the route Mm. at least to check in and out to make sure you know just so that they kind of have a little bit of a better idea of where people are you know so if nobody's seen you for a few days they're going to go out and look for you but you know not every team is going to be it's not necessarily what's going to be best for the team to run it from checkpoint to checkpoint to checkpoint you know because it might be 20 miles between one checkpoint and the next and then 120 miles until the next one you know so during the races and thing it, it varies you know you'll you'll roll into checkpoints and have the opportunity to flop down on a you know gymnasium floor or a little cabin or whatever but you know the then there's a lot of people around you, a lot of people moving around, a lot of dogs out there, a lot of dog teams. So there's, you know, females in the heat. There's like, there's a lot of distractions there. So I never, ever liked that. I, I never stopped at a checkpoint unless I absolutely had to, like mandatory rest kind of had to. Because, you know, even, you know, even if I could see when I rolled into a checkpoint that my dogs were getting really ready for a rest... I would still run them out again and run 
a mile down the trail and park on, on the side. You know, because I have everything that I need to take care of them and myself, and then I would get the peace and quiet and the sort of quality of the rest. Hmm. And you just so, sleep out in the snow, just in the sleeping bag, or you put up, up a tent, or no, no, just uh, I had a I had a sled builder, a really really good sled builder in Alaska, make me a sled that was as long as I am, plus was an inch wider than a, net, a standard sled um, to accommodate my shoulders. Mm. And then I would just, I had all of my stuff in, in bags and I would just basically empty the sled, toss a, toss a foam like sleeping pad at the bottom of the sled and then just flop down into my sled and, and catch a few winks. That is so in cool. The sled. That's so mm. neat, man. That is so neat. Well, could you tell, so um, before this conversation, I told you how interested I was in hearing, because I've heard on your podcast, you know, usually you're interviewing a lot of houndsmen and whatnot, but every once in a while, you'll tell a little bit from your mushing days. Um, sure. Would you tell, so you have a, you, you have two things I think I really want to hear about. One is like a really harrowing experience that sounds like mm -hmm. it could have been death. And then the other one you said, um, some things were happening due to just extreme exhaustion on just from the, the long hauls of these races. Could you yeah. kind of tell these two stories with as much detail as you can? Sure. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, I can start with the, the latter. It wasn't actually during a race. It was while I was preparing for a race. get a dog team ready for a race requires you know a, not a, not just a lot of training leading up to the race but a lot of care and and a lot of training uh you know four or five months before the race even starts you want to be able to build that dog team up slowly enough so that they're mentally not going to burn out and also physically going to be able to you know do it where you're giving them enough rest so that they are not you know, wearing their bodies down, that they're building them stronger and not actually crossing that line between getting fit and wearing their bodies out. Um, and as you get closer to the races, there's a, there's a period of time where you really have to do a lot of longer back-to-back -back races or runs to get the dogs mentally prepared for being on their feet for a really long time and also to get yourself mentally prepared for it. Um, and, you know, part of that is just teaching the dogs that even when things, even when we're training a lot, that they're always going to get food every other hour, that I'm always going to take care of them, that when they're tired, I'm going to let them sleep. You know, it's basically just a, just a shakedown, letting, reaffirming to them that I'm going to take care of them. And that's great, but it also means that while they're resting, I'm out there checking their feet i'm feeding them i'm massaging if they've got some kind of soreness going on i'm massaging that i'm you know putting taking booties off putting booties on so if say they've got two hours of rest three hours of rest they may rest for two or three hours 
Whereas I might get 15 or 20 minutes when I'm all done with what I need to do. And this one thing happened to me where, where I'd been out for, I, I guess I was doing my third 50 mile run in two days. And my son was, yeah, eight months old. And I just was not getting enough sleep at this point. And I was running up this hill that I'd run up many, many times. And you get up to the top of this hill and then you're, then you're up above the tree line. And I remember running up this hill and looking up and it looked like there were light bulbs on all of my dog's feet where every, every time their foot hit the snow, it would, their feet would illuminate. And there, like, it, it would last for a long time. Like, where as they, as they traveled, every time their foot hit the ground, it would light up. And I'd been out, I'd, I, I, I'd been mushing for about 20 years at that point. So I knew what was happening. I knew I was hallucinating at this point. So I wasn't real scared or but it was it was just such a surreal moment and it was a I mean it was really beautiful it was these sort of like these flashes of green and purple and kind of like northern lights a little bit like northern lights uh, emanating from the dog's feet as they ran and it was it was really a, a, a sort of magical moment but at the same time you know the practical part of my brain was kicking in at the same time saying okay you, re you really need to get some sleep here. <laughs> that was one of the more beautiful, surreal moments in my, you know, I've seen, I've, I've been so lucky. I've seen more sunsets and sunrises from a dog sled than, uh, yeah, I've been extremely lucky. Have have seen some amazing, amazing things. The dog that I actually have of every any dog in my career that I had uh, the most mileage with died this fall, late this fall. Her name was Alpha, and I I did the math, and I think I had something to the tune of like twelve or thirteen, somewhere between twelve and thirteen thousand miles on a dog sled with that dog. Mm. Um. You know, and, and that's a lot of when you consider that the dog teams ro are going to be rolling at maybe 10 miles an hour, that's a lot of hours just together, just actively moving with that dog, let alone all the time feeding and caring and all, the, all of those things. You know, so if you just look in that one dog's, you know, 11 year career with me, you know, that was that's an enormous amount of time to experience things. And, you know, I've been very, very lucky and have experienced some 
gorgeous, gorgeous things. And some, you know, have experienced some heartbreak and some, some real scary moments where I wasn't sure, I wasn't sure I was going to make it, you know, well, be- before she you was, get into she was that, part though. of that team. Yeah. Before you get into that story, I do want to say that, you know, hearing you did a recent episode where you're talking about old dogs and, um, mm. you know, me being a total outsider to this working hunting dog culture, um, you know, trying to educate myself and learn, you know, obviously I'm listening to podcasts, yours and the, the umbrella company, W, um, W U, um, and many other hound podcasts, um, and hunting dog in general. So what has struck me very intensely is, uh, nowhere else really have I observed like such kind of harder or rougher men be Mm. brought to, to such, uh, like shaking tears than when they speak about their love of these dogs. And, you know, for me, I think Mm. it, I think it's just so, I, I know people have very intense relationships with their pets, but I think there's an element with the working element, like you're saying, the mm. joining in the adventure. If if you're hunting, then it's like this creature, our dog has literally killed a squirrel that we ate that night. Like I didn't even shoot it. So there, right. that these experiences that are taking us back to the earliest humans and their interaction with dogs, it's just, I'm, I'm very moved to, to, so often hear how moved these uh hunting dog guys are and you know just talking about yeah exactly what you're saying the the intense amount of uh time you you spend it's it's a it's a fully consuming lifestyle but it's even more than that it it is you know it it is and you know in in today's today's world you know you'll get there's there's so much that happens on social media. So much of people's lives is lived via social media. So I, I think that you see people now getting into it, getting into working dogs specifically to have because it's it's how they want to identify themselves on in their lives, including social media. You know, so I've talked to, I've had people who have asked to be on my podcast and I've talked to people who I would never have on the podcast because through my, through my conversations with them, it's become sort of vaguely, I I begin to suspect that they're not into this because of the dogs Mm. or even really the experiences they're in it for what it says about what they think it says about them. Well, Hey, let me say this. Never carry on. Sorry. Finish your thought. No, go for it. I was going to say something on that note that it's about the dogs. This is something I've been kind of musing over for like the past year or so. You know, I have this little squirrel hunting dog, but uh, I'm just, I'm enjoying it kind of uh, at, an amateur level when I'm listening to all these people who are the, like you, who are like these true dog people, just like they're horse people or even the herpetologists mm. I've talked to, um, that it seems to me, um, so 
when I kind of observe like the deer hunting culture, it seems as though the stag, the antlers are kind of like this, the thing that those, that the people are deeply passionate about deer hunting. It's like almost a worship. Like they worship the Mm -hmm. image of the stag. They worship the antlers. Um, and, uh, you, you find that a lot with the, the folks that are into the bird hunting, especially turkeys. There's, there's almost a religious worship. Now with the dog folks, Mm. from my point of view, it almost seems like it's less about the worship of the quarry and it's more about the worship of the dog. Like the, even the iconography, the logos in the dog hunting world, it's of the dog. It's not really of the bear. It's not really of the raccoon or the moose or the whatever you're pursuing. It's the dog. It's the, it's worshiping this ancient relationship or I even had this moment where, so I went to hang out with my squirrel dog breeder in uh, Kentucky. And, um, so, you know, a lot of you guys, a lot of you guys will, uh, transport your dogs in these dog boxes that are in the back of a uh, back of a pickup truck. And so he had his mountain feists in these boxes and it was pretty cold. So they were all in there with a uh, straw and whatnot, but I didn't even really get to see mm-hmm. him when we were staying at the hotel. So I hadn't even seen the relatives of my dog yet. And, um, you know, at dawn on this morning before we were about to start squirrel hunting, you know, he opens the box and the first dog comes out. I haven't even seen it in two days. And we're all just sitting there staring at this dog as it's like shaking off and pissing and shitting and just kind of like, and I, I, I had the strangest feeling that I was, that I could have been in, in ancient, like in, I'm just going to pick like Greece. Like I could have been in an mm-hmm. ancient Grecian cult where, you know, there was all these different cults in the ancient worlds where they would worship like a certain God or a certain animal or a God associated with the animal. Sure. And I felt with these hunters, like we're all just sitting in the pre-dawn light, staring at this dog, pissing and shitting and shaking off and drinking <laughs> some water from a dirty puddle. And we're all just staring at it like it's like a holy object. It was the strangest thing. And, and that's when I really right. kind of could solidify this idea that the, the dog hunting guys or all these working dog folks, it's really like a worship of the dog. I don't, does that evoke anything when it, I say that? Absolutely. You know, it, it's, you know, if, because every, every other aspect of what we do could, could be achieved without a dog. You know, if you wanted to go and kill a bear, it's possible to do that without a dog. If you wanted to go and kill a squirrel, it's possible to do that without a dog. If you wanted to be up in the mountains and watch the sunrise on a snowy day, it's possible to do that without a dog team. You know, if you wanted to gather up a bunch of sheep, it's possible to do that without a sheep dog. Mm. But for, for a lot of people, and I'm not the best, you know, I, I, there are so many just eminent dog people out there. And I don't consider myself to be in that rare air. You know, it's, you are, you are. But You're a very one humble thing, guy. W- <laughs> I, I appreciate that. But the but but the thing for me has always been just a deep appreciation and fascination for the dogs. That you know, I, I've that everything that I do with the dogs, I'm not going to say that it's not worth doing without them for me, but I'm pretty much going to say that it's not worth doing for without them for me. You know, I love, 
I love the hunting, but it, and I would do it, but it would be much more of a of a practical task for me. Be like, okay, and today I need to go and fill the freezer. Like it would mm. be a little bit like today I need to go and dig a hole or I need to go and split wood or, or, or something like that. Even if those things in themselves have value, it's the act of doing them together with a dog and the relationship that I have to that animal or those animals that gives me something that it resonates with me in a way that doing it without... Uh, it would hold much less mystique and and mm. joy for me, mm. um, you know. And and it's different for different people, you know. I got I did some dog mushing. I, I mentored this guy who was getting into the sport, and you know, we did this long run where so much happened. It was just like the dogs were doing great, and I had some puppies that were up in lead, and I just had like this this time where I just felt like. You know, I could not have filled the day with even an ounce of more life and experience. And this guy came, he came rolling back and was like, man, I do not understand how we can, like, I don't think I could do this. I was like, well, what part? And he's like, I, it is so boring standing there and looking at these dogs' asses for, four hours it's like this it's it's the most boring thing i've ever done and you know for me it was it was it's endlessly fascinating to me Mm. and you know the reason why i was able to run dogs for 25 years um and you know would not have given it up unless i'd had to um and also why i got into the hunting dogs because i needed it it's become such it's it's become woven into just the very fabric of who i am what my life is about that there are things that in my life that i would you know if would obviously place higher than the dogs you know if you said yeah i had to choose between my wife and kids and dogs there would be no question what <laughs> of choose. course you know, but at the same time, it's like my life after that point would be, you know, less yeah. vibrant and I, duller. I often think that, you know, obviously because of my uh, Jungian uh, enthusiasm for the Jungian perspective of life, I obviously I feel it that everyone is an individual. And yet at the same time, I do Mm. think there are like types of people. And, um, it's like the, the human soul for these dog folks. And I would say it relates to horse people, you know, or, um, Mm -hmm. my friend's dad was a Greek sailor. Well, okay. Let me backtrack here. What I'm trying to say is that I think that for certain types of people like you and your relationship to these dogs is so uh, tied in with like what the soul is that if you yeah. were stripped of that, you would be soul. There'd be a s- part of your soul would be dead. You know, like it's absolutely. such a part of you. And I absolutely. And it, yeah, I totally agree. And, and what comes to mind, way to put it. 
what comes to mind is I have a weekly group with a bunch of guys I talk to from different parts in the U.S. And one of the guys is of Greek descent. His father was a Greek sailor and his father had to come to New York because the mom, I think, was from New York or something, and she wasn't going to live in Greece. And his father had to give up being a sailor. And uh, I think it was even a long generational line of sailors. And his dad was always extremely angry. He became like an electrician, but lots of issues in that, but just very resentful they had to give that up. And I was like, man, like, yeah, you're from Greece? Like the whole culture of Greece are these sailors. I mean, we go back to the, the Odyssey and you know, mythology and to have to give up. I just feel that there are types of people and they're what mm. they, they're, however you want to say it, your hobbies, your pastimes, it's not even that. It's not even a lifestyle. It's like a soul, a type of soul of a person. Like there are some people who are these dog yeah. people. There are some people who are warriors, you know, who get enrichment from that culture, you know, fascinating. Sure. Um, it, it is, it, it is fascinating. You know, it's, it's for, for me, it's as simple as finding my, you know, f- finding my, my resonance mm. in life, my, you know, my something that resonated so deeply with me that it became as natural to me as, as, as breathing, you know, mm. and it's, it's brought me so much joy, but it's also, you know, especially the last five years has brought me in an, an, in an enormous amount of, I'm, I'm paying the price for, the 25 years of joy with, you know, five years of, of sorrow, having to, have, having to have walked away. You know, I was forced to walk away before I wanted to. Why? And, um, I injured myself. I, I was mm. in a workplace accident and um, fell off of a roof and landed on my back in the parking lot. I hit the, I hit the scaffolding on the way down. And um, permanently damaged my lower back and and one of my legs, and uh, I'm able to get around okay. Uh, but standing on a dog sled, standing upright for six seven hours at a time, and also bending down, harnessing, and taking off, and doing booties and all of those things, uh, and walking in mm-hmm. snow, uh, became so difficult that I began to doubt my own ability after a couple of bad runs. I began to doubt my own ability to uh, act, to take care of the dogs to the degree that I felt I needed to, to yeah. do it. Man, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, it was, it was a bummer. You know, I was, um, I was not ready to walk away from it. I had a, you know, I, it was, you know, until, until my wife, came around you know the the love of my life um you know but with every lost opportunity you know gives you the op every lost everything you need to put aside it gives you space for something new you know it's every everything you put down you know frees you up for yeah, rebirth. New experiences. A yeah, rebirth. exactly. And, and we're going to get into how you've switched uh, paths there. Um, yeah. You know, everything you've been kind of saying is just kind of adding on to the depth of uh, one's relationship with having these working dogs. Um, I think 
I would say not many people have an experiences like you have regarding, you know, a near death experience and how that re- with a dog, you know? So I think it's yeah. really amazing if you could tell one of those stories. I was uh, just a few days before Christmas in 2012, 13 maybe. I was um, I was out training a uh, out training a team, and I was running along a lake, and it had been brutally, brutally cold for a long period of time. Um, so. I knew that the ice was more than thick enough and I, I, the trail had been on that lake and it wasn't just me using that trail for several months um, without there being any problems. But what, what had happened was that the ice, sometimes what will happen is that the ice will, it will freeze. And then in this case, this, this lake fed into a reservoir that occasionally they would, they would, tap and the trail was usually on the bank but this year for some reason the trail was put just a few feet off of the bank and what what happened was that I as I was running I started to see in the dog's footprints that they're they were leaving dark footprints in the snow which is a very good indication that there's water underneath the snow. And I knew the lay of the land pretty well. Uh, so I just kept them moving. I didn't want to stop because I knew if we stopped, then if there was water under the snow, the snow would sag and we would we would end up in the water. And I had a youngish lead dog up front and she was starting to get a little bit weirded out because you could hear some the ice cracking a little bit and you could hear the sort of groaning of the snow and we got to a place where I thought that you know generally the water was going to be lower uh, there so I thought it was a safer place to stop and I stopped and as soon as I stopped um, my sled tipped and uh, I was well over my shoulders uh, in the water. Um, it was a brutally, brutally cold day, like, you know, 30 below cold. And, um, you know, you're running in these big, thick winter clothes, and they immediately saturated with water and became extremely heavy. My head never went fully under. I got kind of up to my up to my beard but that was about it um so you know i was able to stop i was able to take a couple of deep breaths and was able to see how serious a situation it was the sled when i fell the sled righted itself and i was able to sort of by kicking my feet as hard as i could because i couldn't touch the bottom was able to get to kick up hard enough to get a an arm sort of latched 
through the sled. But every time I tried to pull myself up, the sled would would start to sink into the snow, uh, which was just barely covering this this water. Um, the dogs were on fairly solid ground. Apart from the bat, the dogs in the back were panicking because they were also um, starting to sink. One thing you learn when you're dog mushing is, you know, not only are you in trouble if you lose your team, but your dogs are in trouble because they're all tied to each other and they're completely dependent on you to take care of them, you know, and break the sled down on the downhill so they're not getting run over by the sled. You know, there's a lot of things that go into it. And, you know, we're, we're, it was drilled into me when I started, you know, that you never, ever let go of the dog sled. And that was, you know, it had been drilled into me when I started. And then I drilled it into myself so many times that it was just the hooking my arm through the sled was more of a just automatic instinctual don't let go of the dog sled kind of a deal uh, more than a, a well thought out plan for getting out of there. Um, luckily for me, I had, I had a very good lead dog with this younger female who had made, she was the reason I'd stopped. But, um, when I, when I got my, my arm through the sled and realized I couldn't pull myself out, I, I had, when I train dogs, I I tended to work. I, I don't like having a bunch of dogs jumping and screaming and kind of wanting, all wanting to go where when I say, okay, there's this, all right, guys, let's go, which would be my command to go. I don't like having a team that will sort of just lurch the sled into motion and then all realize that they're running and then start to pull. I would rather have a team that when I say, are you guys ready, that they all lean into their harness. And when I say, okay, let's go, that they they all take those first steps as one unit. And it was something that was a preference thing for me, but it was it was a, a training thing that I'm I'm quite convinced saved my life that day because I, I said I said hey are you guys ready and kept my voice real calm, just said hey you guys ready, and they leaned into their harness and I said okay let's go, and they all started pulling apart from that one lead dog, but the uh, dog next to her um, was a super super solid dog. And uh, yeah, they they pulled me sort of sideways through the slush for yeah five or six feet, and then I hit the edge of the ice and um, got pulled up out of the ice and um, had to run because I could see where my I made my mistake. I could see that the that the water was higher than I thought it was, so I had to run them for almost a mile before I was I could take the uh, trail that went up off of the ice onto what I knew was solid ground. And at that point, my, my clothes had frozen more or less, you know, not solid down to the skin, but, you know, had frozen to the point where I couldn't get my jacket off. I couldn't get, I couldn't get the zipper undone. I, you know, I couldn't get my mittens. I couldn't really get them off. Um, everything had frozen into this armor and, so even though I had extra clothes and and the fire starters and things in my sled, the extra clothes were in a waterproof bag together with the fire starters, but I couldn't get my gloves off to 
to get them out, and I couldn't get my the rest of my clothes off to change into dry clothes. So I was ten and a half, eleven miles from the truck, and just had to just had to stand up and and have them go. You know, have them pull me. I ran as much of that as I could, uh, trying to keep my body temperature up. I was I was could already feel that I was becoming hypothermic. And I got to, I got back to the truck and had managed to wiggle, had managed to sort of breathe on, breathe on my glove uh, on my right hand enough to get my, to, to thaw it out so I could get the edge of it in my teeth and was able to sort of, you know, get it off. Uh, my hand was pretty, was already starting to get a little bit frostbitten, um, but I was able to unhook the dogs. I left all of the sled, everything up there. I was just able to start the car. I had to use my wrist to turn the key. And um, I uh, just turned the heater on full blast and drove as fast as I could home um, and got into, had to walk, directly into the shower with all of my gear on and had to stand in the shower. And it was, it was, it was bad enough that this, my long underwear had started to freeze to the hair on my leg. I was pretty badly hypothermic by the time I got home and had frostbitten my fingers and had frostbitten my feet. Um, and the skin on my, um, the skin on my, um, my thighs uh, was also frostbitten. Um, and I have a, around my neck, I wear a, um, uh, the, the rabies tag from my very first lead dog way back from the time he was, when I was in Maine. And when I got, when I, by the time I got back to the truck, that had frozen to my chest. So I was I was in rough shape, you know. I was I was I was in bad shape at that point. But you know, luckily walked away with all of my fingers and all of my toes. My toes swelled up, and you know, every everything from the wrist down and my ankles down, and really my really my hips down, peeled. Um, you know, because that's tends to be what happens with first and second degree frostbite. So I got, I got really lucky, but you know, after that I was also really susceptible, you know, really had to really watch it when I had, uh, when it got real cold cause you know, my feet and it, uh, once you get frostbitten, it's really easy to get it again. And, uh, yeah, without the dogs, if, if they hadn't been there, I do not think that I would have been able to get out of there on my own. And even if I had, it would have taken me, instead of taking me 45 minutes to get back to the car, it would have taken me several hours. And I, I don't think that I would have made it, um, would have made it back as, as drenched and cold as I was. I mean, 
that is a hell of a story. That is terrifying. Yeah, it was it was scary. I mean, I can only relate to that like in one one hundredth of the intensity, but um, I've done a little caving and there'll be there'll be sections that you go through that are you go through water and uh, yeah. caves in our area. They hold a temperature yearly around 50 degrees. Now, the water, I don't know what it is, but it's uh, it's much colder than that. But um, some people cave in wetsuits. But when you're doing it, when there's not that much water, usually people just go in their clothes or in like one of these nylon caving suits. But uh, one of the first times that I had to do a section where you dive through it, like you go into a pool and then you dive under rocks, um, I was very startled by my clothes flooding and the weight and the incredibly cold, but the clothes flooding and and the weight of that. So that I can see yeah. your experience. That must have been really scary. Your clothes getting so saturated. Yeah, it, it was scary, you know, and, and, you know, uh, I'm claustrophobic. So the caving mm. thing just makes my, 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 uh, <laughs> my palms sweat a little bit there. But, um, yeah, it's, you know, it, it was scary, but it was one of those things where, you know, it, it's, <clears throat> excuse me, it takes a minute to tell the story, but it all happened from when I went into the water to when they had me on, you know, had me enough out so that I was able to swing my legs around and stand back up on the sled. You know, I, I don't think it was more than, it couldn't have been more than 60 seconds. You know, it was, it was, mm. it, was it all happened very fast, you know, so, but that's all you know, it takes. That initial, Oh, absolutely. I mean, and, how know, many people have, shock and how many people in history have died like that? I gotta be a lot. Oh, a bunch. Yeah. A bunch of people up in Alaska have died like that. And I know people here who have died like that. And, you know, it's, it's not, you know, it, it, that's a rough way to go. Um, you know, but what that initial going through, I knew looking back, I realized how hairy that initial part was. You know, because I couldn't touch the bottom quite there, quite, mm. quite yet. I knew the bank wasn't that far away, so I don't know what would have happened. You know, I might have been able to sort of smash my way to where I could stand and just kind of break my way to the to you know solid or footing. I'm not sure, but the the real like I'm in deep shit here moment came when I realized that I couldn't get out of my free, my freezing clothes. <laughs> yes, exactly. It was like, oh, I'm, I'm in serious trouble here. I'm, I'm an hour or more away from any source of warmth. Wow. Well, I mean, we've had an awesome and long conversation. I don't think we should go too much more because this has been awesome sure. and I've enjoyed this all. But I guess, you know, we got to say a little bit about, uh, you know, maybe in another... 10 minutes or so, maybe let's just hear. So you transitioned out of the mushing because of your accident. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, you're obviously your love of dogs has not gone anywhere. You're a vet. Yeah. Or a vet assistant. Yeah. I'm a veterinary assistant. Yeah. Vet tech. Yep. And, and uh, obviously now you've moved into hunting. And I think I even read that you didn't even grow up, even though you were so rural doing a lot of these uh, old time things and you you did not grow up in a hunting family, and now you're hunting all the time with your dogs. Do you want to say a little bit about all that? Sure, yeah. Um, yeah, you're right. I didn't grow up in a hunting family. Uh, my uncle hunted, but I never went with him. Um, 
Same and here. And he, he was, yeah, it was one of those just weird deals where people, you know, the, the family kind of looked at it as with vague disinterest, maybe a little bit of judgment. Like, yeah, he does that strangely. You know, mm-hmm. it was like a, a strange thing that he did. Um, but I did grow up with, on a farm and we mm. raised and harvested our own um, turkeys and chickens and pigs and cows mm. and things like that. Um, so, you know, what I, my whole life, I've really, really enjoyed cooking. Mm. You know, I'm in, I'm not professional in any stretch of the imagination, but it's just something that I really enjoyed doing. And when I moved to Norway, I lament, I didn't really want to get back into farm animals again. And, you know, but I lamented the lack of really good quality ingredients, you know, because the, the, the difference between pork that you raise and harvest yourself versus pork that you buy at, you know, the local supermarket there's a huge difference in the quality and the texture and the taste. And I missed that. And, you know, if so, the not hunting uh, suddenly the, the hypocrisy struck me a little bit being kind of not a non hunter or even, you know, having definitely having some, you know, especially growing up being, you know, coming from the Bambi generation, it was definitely some anti hunting, vibes when I was a kid, if nothing else. And, and suddenly the hypocrisy, the whole thing, you know, here I am actually gaining the trust of a bunch of animals that I know by their first names before I kill, you know, before I kill them. Why is, why is that any better than going out and harvesting a deer, for example? And I, that was a question I couldn't, I couldn't answer. And I knew that I wanted the access to the ingredients. So that's what got me you know, I was looking for something else to do when I couldn't do the dog mushing anymore. And um, while I was recovering from, you know, a, a long, rec- long recovery from the initial injury and then some uh, surgery afterwards that also had some uh, long recovery period, a neighbor and friend of mine just decided that he was going to, yeah, take my mind off of all of this. And he started dragging me to these hunter safety courses that he was teaching. Hmm. And, you know, in some ways it was really dragging, you know, I couldn't drive, I couldn't do anything. And he would just, he would come up here on his way over. This was John Anders, my neighbor and just, yeah, pick, pick me up. And, and by the end of it, I, I had taken the test and passed the hunter safety course and he helped me find a rifle and just kind of, walked me through everything and, and got me, got me into it. And, uh, you know, I started to get interested in it, but still was mourning the loss of the working dogs. And, hmm. you know, it didn't take me long to put two and two together and be like, well, this, I find this interesting and I want to keep doing it, but I'm really missing the dogs. But there's, you know, there, there, there are ways to combine those two things. And that's what got me into into the hounds, and it's what got me, yeah, doing all the things that I do now. You know, no, I've got, I've got a a beagle that I hunt roe deer with, and I've got a couple of hounds that I hunt foxes with, 
um, and uh, some links and you know th- things like that. And I try and get out and my 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 neighbor uh, John Anders. He's got um, the Norwegian elk hounds, which they actually use for hunting moose over here. Uh, so I get to go out with him every fall and fill the freezer with moose meat and over dogs. And it's just, it's, you know, still a really doggy life. And I've got my own podcast with the the guys over at W, like you pointed out. And they were, they were awesome and just gave this rank, rank newbie. A, uh, yeah, basically the credentials. I It was the media credentials I needed to just call whoever and be like, hey, would you come and talk to me so I can ask a bunch of stupid questions for the next two hours? It was just like it, it just gave me the it gave me the option that to ask all of the questions that I I wanted to ask to the absolute best people that I, I could ask getting into the sport. Well, and then obviously and was, with your incredible knowledge with the sled dog, so obviously you you're not the total. It's just a different slice of the working dog world that you're exploring and becoming better. Right. Better. I mean, yeah, I mean the there's a lot of differences and you know in, in terms of in terms of the hounds I really, you know, I've been doing it for 5 years now, but I'm still I'm still a newbie. You know, it's still really really new. I still see that I do some you know things that in hindsight it's like, "Oh, that was a that was a rookie mistake." You know, a, a lot of the working dog things, a lot of the, you know, especially especially the hounds and the and the huskies it requires so many of so many of the same things in terms of connections with the dogs uh, the physical training the tough you know the, the the physical intensity of what they're doing that you know I, I found a lot of what I had learned through 25 years of dog mushing was comparable that I could apply it to the the hounds in a lot of, in some really kind of fun ways. Um, you know, so even if they're totally different types of dogs, you know, my, my hounds are really, you know, still standing on the shoulders of some very, very great dogs that came before them that taught me the things that I'm applying to them now. Um, you know, albeit a totally different type of working dog. I think, um, I think that some, I'll, I think when some people look at hunting with dogs, uh, I'll even speak for myself, having gotten into hunting only five and a half years ago, the dog element like trapping was kind of like something like, well, I don't, I have no experience of this. I'm only seeing images online, videos online. So I, you know, I think me at that point, as well as many people, uh, think like maybe it's cheating, you know, and, uh, maybe it's Mm -hmm. a little, uh, you're just sticking your dogs on wildlife. And, you know, I think, I think that's where it gets some of its bad rap. Um, and yet Absolutely. now, now yeah. that I've experienced it, I mean, the idea that it, you're just walking off of the side of a road and getting a, you know, something as majestic and as incredible as a bear, I mean, it could happen, but that's not really like what I just did with these, with my friends in Virginia. I, again, I said, it's probably the hardest endurance 11 miles I've ever done in my life. And uh, I right. know you, you and your friends up in, you know, northern Norway. You guys are just like tramping for the entire day. You know, ten miles plus in these snowy wilds. Sometimes you're out into the, into the middle of the night trying to find your dog. You know, it's like 
yeah. it, it takes an incredible amount of effort. It, it really does. It really does. It's the, uh, I'm, I'm in much, you know, you've got to do a lot of work with the sled dogs as well. So I've, I, you know, I've never been in terrible shape in that sense, but I'm in much better shape now because mm. I don't have anything pulling me around. You know, I've had, anywhere I go, I need to get there on my own propulsion. So it's, uh, it's, uh, you know, anybody who thinks that it's easy, um, hasn't seen it done and, mm-hmm. you know, also, but coming from a background of sort of ambivalence to hunting or even a little bit of negative negativity towards hunting way back when, when I didn't understand what it was and I didn't understand what was behind it. You know, it's, I can kind of understand where people are coming from if their only experience their own of, of hunting is, you know, their only frame of reference is seeing, you know, the the hounds run Bambi's mother to death or, you know, the, the, the hounds in the Fox and the hound, you know, it's like, of course it's going to have some negative connotations to them, even on a sort of subliminal level of like, I don't know why I feel this way, but I automatically have an aversion to this thing, you know? And, and I, so I, I understand where they're coming from, but the two things yeah. that help me with the, some of these questions are one from having no experience with this. I didn't even have it. I've never even had a dog until this little squirrel dog. Um, that's awesome. The, the two things that really changed my interpretation of like hunting with dogs is, and it's also helped with trapping, but it, one it's historical. So once you realize that like all cultures have done this, I mean, you look at uh, like art from all across the world so much of art is hunting art and all of it are anywhere in India, in Japan. Um, you know, the Inuit you're mentioning, there's dogs. Everyone was hunting with dogs. So you're taking part in something that has, has been across the entire world and it, you know, an ancient timeless experience. And the second thing that, that was not obvious to me before I got into it, is I almost thought like you're making a dog do that. Have only having only seen house dogs, I was like, man, you're right. ma- you're making your dog do this, not realizing that this dog. I've said it before. It's like in an ecstatic state. Like it's like this is mm. what this creature is supposed to do. Having the mm-hmm. sled dog in a New York City apartment, that is what is sad. Like that it seems like torture to this creature. Like imagine being sure. a super athlete then you're not allowed to exercise. Like right, the, yeah. these, these <laughs> exactly. dogs are super athletes. And when, you know, I can't even like pet when we're squirrel dog hunting, I can't even like pet my dog. Like she doesn't yep. normally, she wants as much attention as she can get. She wants as many sn- treats as she can get when we're hunting. She doesn't, she has like almost no interest in me because she's so laser focused and to me in such an ecstatic state. I mean, the tail is rat thrashing, just such hyper focus. Like this is what, you know, back to what I was saying before, how I feel like there are types of people and it's connected to like the soul of a person. The soul of these dogs is to do the thing. Right. And yeah. Oh, uh, absolutely. (laughs) Um, 
All right. Well, I think we've had a long and epic conversation. So I know we didn't it's been even, awesome. I've we didn't it. even really get into the dog hunting stuff, but what we can do it another time. And in any ways, that's like the focus of your podcast. So if someone has listened to this and they've enjoyed this and have enjoyed your stories and the way that you um, communicate a lot of these things, I mean, your podcast has been so helpful to me. I, I love hearing the European uh, from European hunters. Um, yeah. Anyways, say the end of your podcast, the name of your podcast, and this thing is going to time out. My podcast is called The Hunting Hound Podcast. Well, thank you so much, man. I'm sorry we're about to run out here, but this has been incredible. It's been so much fun. I really appreciate having me on, and I really enjoy your podcast. I think you're doing a lot to, uh, to, to, to bring a different perspective into what we do that I think is really healthy and really, really interesting. <laughs>